Hey, how many get ready in the word this morning? We're going to continue. Last week, we began part one, and this is the end of part two um, of our series on the Trinity. And so if you were here, or if you listened to the message online, uh, we first looked at the concept of the Trinity, and then what was biblical and what was not. So before we get started too deep in the word, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and fellowship together. But Lord, we know that we, we come specifically to worship you. Lord, we want to worship you in not just the songs this morning, but in the message this morning. Lord, I pray that, uh, that everything that's spoken would reflect your glory. I pray that as we go into the Trinity, Lord, each thing that's spoken, it would, it would stick with people. They'd talk about it afterwards. Remind us of your majesty this morning. Remind us of your greatness this morning. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we started out by talking about the difference between simple truth and deep truth. So the simple truth is to say that we believe in the Trinity. That's a simple truth, right? We say, hey, we believe in the Trinity. The deeper truth is to, you know, what's the Trinity? Last week, if you were here or if you just know, what is the Trinity? Anybody? Father, Son, Holy Ghost, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The deeper truth is that we believe in one God existent in three persons. So I want to make this very clear. We don't believe in three gods, right? That's called tritheism, which we talked about last week. We also don't believe in three manifestations or expressions of one God. That's called modalism. We don't want to get into that. We looked at the different analogies that we use. Remember, we looked at the egg and we looked at the water and the different analogies that sometimes people use for the Trinity and how really they're well-intentioned, but they always fall short. It's interesting because they fall short because it's nearly impossible to wrap our minds around the math. That one plus one plus one equals one. It's, it's nearly impossible. Somebody else said one times one times one equals one. <laughs> so I suppose you could use it that way. It'd be okay. But there's so many ways that we try to understand the Trinity. There's so many ways that we try to wrap our Human, human minds around a divine concept or around a divine truth. Uh, I'll repeat the, the quote that I gave you last week. All study of the nature of God defies our full comprehension, but the triunity of God is the greatest of all divine mysteries. It's the greatest of all divine mysteries. So while this is difficult for us to understand entirely, we can absolutely see that this is truth in Scripture. All right, so that's a condensed version of what we went through last week. And now this week, we're going to dig into the roles of the Trinity and how they not only operated in the Bible, but how they operate today. So let's start from the beginning. How many know that's a good place to start? All right, that's a good place to start, right? And start in the beginning. So in the beginning, go to the next slide. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I put in parentheses there, Elohim. Do you remember last week we talked about there's a singular use for God, and then there's a plural use for God. Elohim is the plural use for God. 
So in the beginning, God, plural, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, singular, was hovering over the waters. And God, Elohim, plural, said, let there be light. And there was light. Amen? How many glad that there was light? There is a simple truth, and that's God is a creator. God as creator is a simple truth, right? But now we're going to dig, dig into some deep truth. And by deep, I mean real deep. Okay, I needed, I, I had to make sure that even in studying this, I wasn't going over my head because I want to make sure that I present it to you guys in a way that's not only understandable for me, but understandable for all of us. Amen? Deep truth. The deeper truth is this, that out of nothing, God called creation into existence. Amen? Out of nothing, God called creation into existence. This is the beginning of the dimension that we exist in that's known as space and time, or time and space. Now, we're going to get into some interesting stuff here because the interesting thing is this. In the beginning of what we know as time, God was already there. Come on. In the beginning of all that was begat, God was there. Right, Bobby? Bobby, I miss your smiling face. I'm so glad you're here this morning. In the beginning, God was already there. So in our minds, this is a tough concept. How, how if there's a beginning, how can there be something before the beginning? Because the beginning is the beginning, amen? But how can there be something before the beginning? Because time and space is a concept that we live in. It's a truth that we live in. So let's dig into this concept for a minute. So uh, the information that uh, I'm about to pass on uh, is been uh, confirmed by multiple sources, so you can take it to the bank is the best way to say it. In the early 20th century, scientists discovered what was known as quantum mechanics or quantum physics. Now, how many have ever studied quantum mechanics or quantum physics? I know a few people have. I am fascinated by this kind of stuff. It's going into dimensions and travel and space and all the things that go into it. And some of you look at me and go, I never studied it. I don't want to study it. Thanks for studying it for us, but I'm never going to, right? Quantum mechanics, quantum physics. If we were to study quantum physics, now listen to this carefully, we would see that it is a study of matter, energy, and at very small nanoscopic levels, it begins with the nuclei, right? Atoms, and then molecules. How many know what we're made up of? We're made up of matter, right? Beginning with nuclei, atoms, and molecules. Now, prior to the discovery of quantum physics, this is really interesting stuff. Jackie, I was telling her about it, and she's like, are you sure you want to go into this? I don't know. This is really cool stuff. At the, prior the, to the discovery of quantum physics, most scientists believed that time and space only existed in a linear fashion, beginning to end, right? So we see beginning in the beginning. And of course, we're waiting for the end. That's all that exists in time and space. But what they discovered was that space and time was not a linear fashion. It was relative and it was flexible. In fact, 
a scientist by the name of Albert Einstein made a discovery that time and space were relative instead of absolute. And he said this, for us physicists, this is just science, for us physicists, the distinction between past, present, and future is an illusion. The distinction between past, present, and future is an illusion. What, is, what does that mean? If time is relative, how does that line up with the Word of God? Second Peter says this. Go to the next slide there, Mike. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, in case you aren't grabbing out of this concept, that means that time is relative, right? They've only discovered quantum physics in the last century or so. Actually, in the previous century. And so you look at that and go, well, wait a minute. They're only discovering now what the Bible shows us to be true already. To take it further, I want to say this. This is awesome. This is, this is where it gets into some really cool stuff, Gary. I think you might like this. Modern science declares this. There's something called quanta particles. Anybody know what quanta particles are? Mikey, I know you do. <laughs> quanta particles are packets of light waves. Say, so Pastor David, what's, what does this have to do with anything? Packets of light waves. The packets of light waves, these quanta particles, they form atoms. In fact, they, there's a, a process which they surround atoms. So what's the big deal? These atoms then form molecules, and molecules form objects. In other words, this. Everything that we see is made up of quanta particles. Everything that we see is made up of light. Now you say, well, what's the big deal here? Go to Hebrews 11, verse 3. It says this. By faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. That means everything that we can see is made up of what we cannot see. That means, Gary, science is just now starting to catch up to what the Bible says is true. It's just now. Crazy science is starting to catch up to what we already know is biblical truth. So when we think of the Trinity... When we think of God the Father, when we think of the role of God the Father, when he spoke creation into existence, when he said, let there be light, James, amen, he said, let there be light, and light began to form everything around us. Do you understand how incredible this is? You look at this and you go, well, wait a minute. Do we understand how incredibly majestic creation is? How incredibly complex creation is to where scientists now, as they study quantum physics more and more, are saying we're seeing what we've denied for many years, and that's existence of God. Through what God's created, they're discovering God. We also see clearly the Spirit's work in creation. But let's not forget, we're talking about the Trinity here, right? So if we're talking about the Trinity at creation, we see God the Father at work and speaking creation. We see the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters of the earth. And then where do we see Jesus? 
where do we see God the Son? Go to uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5 says this. In the beginning, say beginning, was the Word. Say Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Say made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Amen? In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Say, the darkness has not overcome it. We will not be overcome by the darkness. Amen? Before the beginning, at the beginning, from the beginning, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity. We see it in creation, and then throughout scriptures, we see it throughout, throughout the Old Testament, it's easy to see God the Father. How many know that's true? Old Testament, easy to see God the Father. In fact, pretty easy to see God the Holy Spirit. Difficult to see God the Son. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? So throughout the Old Testament, we see what's known as a Christophany. Say Christophany. I know, it's a little bit of a difficult term. Christophany, it means this. It's a fancy way of saying that sometimes what the Bible describes as an angel or as a messenger is in fact Christ before the incarnation. So it's Christophany. It's, it's, uh, we see him before. We see him as the Son of God. We don't see him as Jesus. He wasn't called Jesus until after he was born. But we see him before he was in Mary's womb. We see him speak to Hagar in Genesis 16. We see him speak to Abraham in Genesis 22. We see him speak to the mother of Samson in Judges 13. We see him prophecies throughout the entire Old Testament leading towards Christ. In fact, this is interesting. Of the 214 usages in the Hebrew for the term angel, about one-third of them refer to a temporary existence of God the Son in the Old Testament. About one-third of them refer to Christ. Sometimes, you know, I said this last week, sometimes we see the Old Testament as a Jewish book. It's a Hebrew book. It's Jewish writers. But I think that if we miss seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, we miss out on understanding that from Jesus in the beginning until Matthew is there. In the beginning, Genesis to Matthew, Jesus is there. And so we understand that when we look at the Bible, whether it be old or new, it's not just a Jewish book, it's a Christian book. It's a book that's centered in and glorifies Jesus. Amen? Because that's what we're called to do. It should all be considered Christian. It should all be read with an understanding that the main theme of the Bible is Jesus. So we see the Trinity at work in the Old Testament, and then clearly in the New Testament. We get to the New Testament, we see Christ at work, we see the Holy Spirit at work, right? How many know we see Christ at work, we see the Holy Spirit at work in the New Testament? Jesus consistently refers to his Father in the New Testament. He refers to his Father in the Gospels, that's clear. But what about today? What about from the New Testament and today? So 
This is where we get into the roles of the Godhead in the Trinity. The roles of the Trinity. All members of the Trinity, listen to this, are equal in essence, but they do not have the same roles. They're equal in essence. They're equal in glory, but they do not have the same roles. So there's a heresy or a false teaching called subordinationism. Subordinationism. Jenny, could there be uh, in the foyer? Thank you. It means this. Subordination means this. That the Godhead is not equal in essence or in power. Meaning that one is subordinate to the other. Not just in their roles, but in their function. And so here's what, here's, let me give you an example. Husband and wife. Husband and wife. How many believe husband? I'm, I'm getting a little bit of trouble here. How many believe husbands and wives are equal? Anybody? <laughs> okay, good. You should. Husbands and wives, men and women are equal, right? Amen? Wow. This is, you're saying, what kind of church service is this this morning? Gary, are men and women equal? Good. Thank you, Gary, for agreeing with me. <laughs> yes. Men and women being equal, but having different roles. Men and women are equal, but they have different roles. One role is to provide. The other is to be a caretaker. They complement each other. It doesn't take away from the equality, but there's an understanding that in some part of the role of a wife, is to be subordinate to the husband as part of the role. It doesn't take away from the equality, but it un it's an understanding of leadership within the home. If you're a man or a husband and you're not the leader in your home, you are not fulfilling the role that God has for you. Do you understand that this morning? I understand there's some feminists out there that would say, oh, I don't agree with that. Well, that's okay. You'd be wrong. Biblically, you'd be wrong. The Lord calls men to be leaders. The Lord calls men to lead their homes and to lead their families. In the absence of the ideal, then sometimes God raises up a woman. Amen? Come on. There are times when, when biblically, God has raised up women to bring judgment to Israel. You want to know why? Because Somebody who was supposed to be doing their job wasn't doing their job. And so we have, in today's culture, we have single mothers. We have all sorts of these different uh, aspects of the societal, you know, norm now. And mothers having to act as father and mother. Mothers having to be spiritual leaders in their homes because their husbands won't stand up. It's been a travesty within the American family, within the global family, that men are not living up to the role that God has for them, so women have to step into the place of it. The ideal is that men have their role, women have roles, and they complement each other. They come together. This is what happens in the Godhead. You have the Godhead, the fancy way of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Equal in essence. 
equal in glory and equal in power, but sometimes their roles require them to be subordinate to one another. I like what Norman Geisler said. He said he's a known theologian, and he spoke clearly about the roles to each other. He said this, All members of the Trinity are equal in essence, but they do not have the same roles. There is a heresy or false teaching called subordinationism. It means the Godhead is not equal in essence or power. Nonetheless, this is, this is important, it is clear that there is a functional subordination. That is, not only does each member have a different function or a role, but some functions are also subordinate to others. So there is a role that Jesus has that may sound subordinate to the Father. But that shouldn't confuse us with his divinity. Amen? For instance, uh, where is Jesus now? What's, what's the location of Jesus? So when I was a kid, uh, they'd say, where's Jesus? And I, what was the, the kid answer is, Jesus is in my heart. Right? Because I prayed a prayer, and I asked Jesus in my heart. Now, we understand that when we pray that prayer, it is a figurative way of saying we're making him Lord of our life, right? And so we're saying, oh, I invite Jesus into my heart. And that's a very sweet thing for a child to say. It's always nice to hear that. And it means that they've made a decision to ask the Lord to be Jesus to be Lord of their life. But how many know what is the actual location of Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Go to the next slide. We see three scriptures very clearly, Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Romans eight thirty four. who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, that's his location, who is indeed interceding for us. Colossians 3, 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If, you, if someone is to ask you the literal location of Christ, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, which sounds like a subordinate position. Right? It, it does. It sounds like, okay, well, you got God the Father, and over here. But that's not what it is. Yes, he's seated at the right hand, but equal in power, glory, and majesty. Amen? He's seated at the right hand, interceding for us what's another example of this where you might be able to might confuse jesus and his divinity uh john 14 verse 28 says this this is jesus speaking you heard me say to you i am going away and i will come to you if you loved me you wouldn't have you would have rejoiced because i am going to the father for the Father is greater than I. Say greater than I. Jesus is not speaking to, his, to who he is in his divinity. He is speaking to the role that he has as a sent son. Amen? Listen, he's not talking about his essence. He's not talking about being God. In fact, you could say this, that throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he continually subjects himself to the will of the Father. It's an example for us. Amen. We are called to submit to the will of the Father. Geisler, nor, uh, he goes on to explain clearly the roles of the Godhead. So what's the function of the Father? 
by his very title of Father, his label of the first person of the Trinity, it is manifest, listen to this, that his function is superior by function, is superior to that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Father, for example, is presented as the source. He's presented as the sender. He's presented as the planner of salvation. Amen? Amen. Then we have, of course, the Son. The Son, on the other hand, is the means to salvation. He's the sent one. He's the achiever of salvation. Amen? Come on. The Father sent. The Son came to save. The Father planned it, but the Son accomplished it. Come on. You guys aren't getting nearly excited about this as you should be. The Father planned for salvation, and the Son accomplished it for you and for me. Amen? What is the Holy Spirit then? The function of the Holy Spirit is to proceed from the Father. The Father never proceeds from the Holy Spirit. Understand that. That is, the Father sends the Spirit, but the Spirit never sends the Father, because that's not the role. To simplify it is this. Make it simple, make it understandable is this. The Father is the planner. The Son is the accomplisher, and the Holy Spirit is the applier of salvation to believers. In other words, the Father is the source, the Son is the means, and the Holy Spirit is the effector of salvation. It is He who convicts and convinces and converts. That's the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict to convince, and then to convert. I can present the gospel. You can present the gospel to your neighbors and your loved ones and, and the people that you love, and you go, man, we, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what God did for you. I can talk to the line blue in the face, red in the face, and you can talk to your blue in the face, red in the face. But ultimately, you might be persuasive, but the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, convict convince, and convert. Amen? It should put you at ease. When I say, I've done all that I can do, God, it's up to you now. I know I've had family members in my life that didn't know the Lord. They might not have been outright, you know, going wild and crazy. and They might not have been like outright criminals. And, you know, a lot of times we think, well, I, I don't know why. I used to think this, like, when I was a Christian growing up in the church, I used to think of non-Christians as like, well, those are the criminals, you know. Those non-Christians, those are the people over at the Sturgis rally, you know, doing all current events, sorry. Those are the people doing all the nonsense. How many know that sometimes as Christians we get into nonsense? Right? We do. I used to think as non-Christians is like, you know, just the ones hunkered down waiting to rob you. Criminals. I was a kid. That's how you think. I know a lot of people who are non-Christians that are lovely people, that are happy people, seemingly, that love their families, that mourn and rejoice 
in the same way we do a lot of times. But they're missing out on salvation for their soul. And as nice and sweet and pleasant as they may be, you know that there's something missing for their eternity. And so it breaks your very heart to think that someone who's so sweet and so loving has ultimately rejected Christ and rejected God. And so you talk to them and you plead with them. And when all the talking and pleading is out, you pray for them. Because that's what we're called to do anyway. Amen? That's what we're called to do. And then we give it to God. That's so why I can go and spend time with a friend who's a non-believer. And I can talk to them about my salvation. They know clearly where I stand with Jesus, and they know clearly where I stand in my faith. And I pray for them. I want to draw them into the glory of God. Sometimes we have to, we try to shove them in, kicking and screaming, right? Sometimes we just try to, don't you understand? There's sometimes where that's called for, sometimes where that, that's called for that, that, that don't you understand? Can you, can you, come on. Somebody with some passion just, yeah, there's times where we have to fervently and passionately share the gospel with them because that's what we're also called to do. I'm going off on a rabbit trail here. That's okay. The roles of the Trinity. The Father plans it. The Son provides it. The Holy Spirit directs it. There's a danger in missing this. I want to say this carefully. The Holy Spirit never brings recognition to himself. He always, say always, always points to Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to forever point to Christ. It's not to bring recognition to himself. And again, this has to do with the role of the Holy Spirit. So think about the role of the Holy Spirit today. So Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit's role in John 14, verse 2. Go to the next slide there, Mikey. It says this. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again, you see the Trinity right there, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Everything Jesus has said to them. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent in my name, that's the Trinity again, we can't miss that, but in referring to the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, he is our Advocate, he is our Teacher, and he is our Reminder. Amen? How many glad for that? In addition, we see throughout the Bible that the Holy Spirit is our Comforter. He is a giver of gifts. He intercedes for us along with Jesus, and then he dwells within us. Amen? When I ask Jesus into my heart, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but the Holy Spirit dwells now within me. 
So because the Holy Spirit is so active in our lives, listen, here's the danger. There are some believers who emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit over the work of Jesus. That's a problem. There are some people who are only focused on signs and wonders or on gifts rather than the giver. So they're, only, they're focused on the Holy Spirit more so than Jesus. Of course, there's many people who underemphasize the Holy Spirit, and that's a problem too, right? How many know there are some people who underemphasize the Holy Spirit? One minister said this, without a robust view of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life becomes a weekly funeral service. Without an understanding of the, the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Christian life becomes a weekly funeral service. And I don't know about you, but I've been to those churches, and I have no reason to go back. Amen? I've been to churches where it's just dead. The Holy Spirit's not moving in any way. And I have no desire to go back. So listen, the thing is this. There has to be a correct balance in our lives. Say balance. There has to be a balance in our lives. And that balance should be about our view of the Holy Spirit as well. It should apply to our prayers. One pastor said this. I like this. The pattern that you find almost uniformly throughout the New Testament is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a balance that involves all of the Trinity. Amen? Pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, he emphasized the word almost. It is almost uniformly. Because how many know there are sometimes you pray, Holy Spirit, fall on us. Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me, right? That's not a bad prayer. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Holy Spirit, come fill us. Not a bad prayer. That's not a bad thing. But if our prayers all the time are only directed at the Holy Spirit, we are missing out on the balance that the Bible gives us. Our prayers should normally, most effectively, be to the Father. Right? Because that's what the Bible directs us to do. Will you stand with me this morning? Carol, could you let Jenny know we're going to be doing? This morning, uh, we're going to talk, about, in talking about the balance of the Trinity, and talking about what God has done for us. Normally, uh, we would take communion on the first Sunday of each month. Uh, and sometimes I switch it up. We don't ever need it to become a tradition that we kind of uh, take for granted sometimes. So uh, this morning, we're going to take communion together. We've set it up to where uh, we put the wafers inside the little cups, just like we did last time. We'll have some people up here holding it for you to come and take it and then bring it back to your seats. Normally, we would all gather in the front, but we're not going to do that because of distancing and whatnot. And so um, even as you're forming the lines to come and pick up the uh, elements. Um, keep in mind that there's some people that are much more comfortable with uh, closeness than others. And so there's some people who are very comfortable with it. There's some people who are not. And so uh, keep that in mind as you make your way forward to grab the elements. Uh,
the sentiment I want to end with this morning. Before we get into communion, the sentiment is this. The Trinity provides us with a balance in our faith. It does. It's the, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And these three, equal in power, equal in essence, equal in substance, equal in glory, are one God. Amen? Amen. If, uh, if there wants to be a line on this side, a line on that side, if you want to start making your way forward at this point, that would be good. Um, again, please keep in mind that some people are very comfortable. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer, you can make your way forward. Listen, uh, if you're a believer, we want, to, we want you to take part in communion with us. Uh, we believe that uh, regardless of whether or not you're a member of the church, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can please start partake with us in communion. So go ahead and start on this side, start on this side, and we're going to worship together, and we'll be back up here in just a minute. can wash away my sin Nothing but the blood Jesus This is all my righteousness Nothing but the blood okay. Let's do it this way. Let's, let's have this side go first, and then we'll do this side because... It's okay, but here can, <laughs> it might take a little extra time, but it's more than okay. Show away my sin. 
family and it's really such a, a nice experience. I love being able to take communion together with family. If you're at home and you have some bread and juice, you can uh, join us in communion this morning. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. It says, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. done at the cross, what you accomplished for us. We can't help but think of your body. Beaten, broken, bruised. And then of course, we can't miss out on the blood. The Bible says this, in the same way, it also took the cup for supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us take the cup. Lord, I thank you for the body and the blood. We don't take this as believing it's, it's literally the body and the blood, but as a representation of what you did at the cross for us. We do this remembering that the Father had a plan, that the Son accomplished that plan, and the Holy Spirit leads us towards accepting the incredible gift of salvation. Jesus continued to say, as for as long as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
for as long as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim what he did at the cross. We thank you for accomplishing it for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The planner, the accomplisher, and the sender. Sorry, the sender, the accomplisher, and the effector of our salvation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray over each person that's here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would keep them. Lord, I pray that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. We're so glad you could be here this morning. We look forward to seeing you next week as well. Uh, God bless you as you spend time with your families. Have a great week.